course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Then Beer, with additional support from REI, Fireside Provisions, and Kuat Racks. For me personally, it's, it's now over 130 first ascents in 36 countries, all six continents other than Antarctica. This is Ben Stokesbury. Chris isn't too far off from that. I've definitely done the majority of my first ascents with Chris. Over the last almost 10 years, we're coming up on a decade of boating together. Ben and Chris Korbulik are the expedition kayakers. Those 130-some-odd descents, they've done them in places where people don't go kayaking. The Himalaya, Papua New Guinea, the Congo, Uganda, India, Pakistan. Is there like a checklist of things that you look for in an ideal expedition? Yeah. I don't know if that checklist actually exists. But inevitably, it's like exotic. Great white water. Some place that you dreamed to go as a, as a kid. Maybe a little political turmoil. Difficult. Some border issues. This is Chris Korbulik. So those are like positives for you at an expedition. Political turmoil check. <laughs> I guess they're, you know, it's hard to say that they're positives, but they're... You know, they're, they're interesting. Like, you're going to run into interesting situations there, and there's so much more potential for an amazing experience. Over the past decade of expeditions, Chris and Ben have dealt with countless obstacles, both with people and with the rivers themselves. In Papua New Guinea, they had to scale 3,000-foot walls of vertical jungle and then bushwhack, dragging their loaded kayaks for seven days of the 13-day expedition. In the Congo... They watched a crocodile snatch their friend out of his boat and never resurface. But both of them say that their 2016 trip to Myanmar was different. Do you ever feel like you've just failed to reach a goal on a river like that in that way before? No. I mean... This was was different, you know. We've been on... One river trip in particular in the past that went horribly wrong because we lost a team member in Africa. And that was a different feeling of failure. That was profound loss. And so I think that, yeah, we had felt that before. But this was different in that it was something that was drier, you know, and just, I don't know, pretty pretty unrewarding at the time. And yet, just a few months later, both Ben and Chris called the trip one of the richest experiences they've ever had. Today, we bring you a story about the intersection of politics and adventure and about how often we learn the most when we fail. 
when things don't go as planned. I'm Jen Alchel, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Usually at the beginning of each year, we both lay our ideas out on the table for, for what expeditions we could pull off, what expeditions we should try to get financing for. And then my idea was this Myanmar. I didn't really know a lot about it, but it was really intriguing and exotic and total mystery. Like, who goes to Myanmar? <laughs> Chris had picked the Irrawaddy River. One of the last free-flowing rivers remaining that close to China, the Irrawaddy emerges at the base of the highest peak in Southeast Asia and flows 1,200 miles to the Adamant Sea. You know, he laid out the fact that he wanted to hike like 85 miles up into the mountains, put in there. And then I started thinking about, wow, you know, what an amazing opportunity to do a source to sea and to try to float all the way to the ocean through the massive Irrawaddy floodplain through... You know, what's said to be one of the oldest civilizations on Earth. We both got pretty excited about that. And then from there, he spearheaded the the logistics, trying to get in touch with locals on the ground, trying to get our permits in order. One reason Ben and Chris have been so successful in places other people don't kayak, Ben has this incredible mind for complicated logistics. Over the past two decades, he's learned who to talk to, what needs to get put in place ahead of time, what they can figure out once they get there. It was a bit of a new role for him taking on those logistics. And uh, I sort of backed away. To put it plainly, the political situation in Myanmar is a disaster. A complicated disaster. Here's an oversimplification. Since 1962, the country has been run by an impressive military with a human rights record so vile it's triggered international condemnation, sanctions, and the rise of at least 15 insurgent groups within the country itself. The insurgents, mainly groups formed of ethnic minorities, have fought the government for over 50 years, the longest-running civil war in history. In March 2016, barely after Chris and Ben left the country, Myanmar held their first real democratic elections, but on a practical level, not much has changed. For now, it remains a country of people scared into silence or carrying guns. For a few generations, it had been ingrained into the culture to not really question authority and even talk about the government, talk about the military, especially in public and even in private. It was almost like the people we asked would look around and look over their shoulder to make sure nobody else could hear. Perhaps nowhere better exemplifies the political conflict in Myanmar than the Irrawaddy River itself. The first half of the river flows through Kachin State in the northern part of the country, over which the Burmese military and the Kachin Independence Army, the KIA, have been shooting each other off and on for the past 54 years. In 1994, the two parties signed a technical ceasefire, but that came to an abrupt end when the military signed an agreement with the Chinese to construct a major dam on the Irrawaddy a dam that would power Yunnan, in China, not Myanmar, and would pose serious threats to the communities upriver. On top of that, Kachin State is the world's foremost source of jade, 
The whole area is littered with illegal jade mines that shuttle just under half the country's gross domestic product out from under the local population in what has been referred to as the biggest natural resource heist in modern history. And the military would prefer to hide their involvement in that. What all of that meant for the kayakers is that not only was Chris in a new role handling expedition logistics, he was doing so in, arguably, one of the most politically corrupt and complicated parts of one of the most politically corrupt and complicated countries in the world, with very few people on the ground willing to talk to him. It was a pretty bold thing for me to be taking on, which, you know, obviously I didn't totally comprehend at the time which is probably <laughs> where things actually started going wrong. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Got all of our stuff here. You guys see if it makes it on the plane. Ben and Chris flew to Yangon, the capital city of Myanmar, and tried to transfer with their kayaks onto a plane that would take them north, as close as they could fly to the source of the Irrawaddy. And they shut us down. No way we're getting the kayaks on the plane. They were saying that the actual plane that they used to get up there just can't accommodate the kayaks. There's no way. And we forced the issue. We were able to delay our flights an extra day. We did everything we could, every trick in the book, good cop, bad cop, where one person gets super angry and the other person is as nice as possible. We both got down on our hands and knees and begged. We both got angry, you know, nothing would work. It just came down to it that we were going to have to send our boats overland. There was no way around it. We were going to have to head up there ourselves. Just keep our fingers crossed that our boats could make a 1,200-mile truck mission through some of the worst roads in Southeast Asia, get through some rebel-controlled country, and make it up to us before our visas expired. Beautiful flight in. Saw the whole Irrawaddy basically up from the ocean to here. But definitely be nice if we had our boats too. Apparently they're on their way. So anywhere from four days to, uh, to never, the boats will definitely show up. Or they won't. Ben and Chris made it to the city of Putao and posted up to wait only to discover that local regulations required that they rent a room in a hotel while they stayed in town. So it was getting really frustrating. It was getting to the point of, you know, we're held up in this hotel room that's costing us, like, 200 bucks a night. We're on this expedition where we're supposed to be on the river, camping off the river, and we're having to deal with this ostentatious tourist accommodation. With no better options, they stayed in Putao and snipped at each other over Chris's poor planning. And then... A week and a half later. Yes. Oh my God. Oh my God, they're here. <laughs> they're here. We're going. Sure, we had to pay almost $3,000 to get our boats just from the capital city all the way up, which is almost four times more than the boats are actually worth. But then, you know, when those boats show up, all that frustration, all that blame, and all that turmoil just disappears. We've still got the, the porters around to help us get into the mountains. The guide is still ready. We still have three weeks left on our permit. We think that we can still pull it off, and we think that this was just part of the deal. Definitely going up into the mountains here. 
bumpy, it's dangerous, the roads are terrible. Just to go like 30 miles from Putao to where the road ends, up towards that corner of the Himalaya, it takes us two days. And, but at that point, we're filled with just so much anticipation, so much excitement. We're so much happier in that bouncing, just horribly gnarly truck. That seems like it's something out of World War II. So much happier there than we were in the, the posh tourist accommodations down in Putao. You know, the adventure's actually starting. End of the line, unloading the gear and... Done big hikes in the past, but what we're on the doorstep of, what we're about to do here is gonna be nasty. From the end of the road, the party still had a 90-mile hike and a mountain range between them and their put-in at the headwaters of the Irrawaddy. A little too heavy right now, but, you know, we're moving. We can do it. It's happening. It's shitty, but it's awesome. In addition to kayaking and camping gear, Ben and Chris had to haul in three weeks of food to get them through the 11-day hike and the first section of paddling down to the next village where they could resupply. They hired a team of five porters, but each of the porters still had to carry their own supplies for the hike, which meant that they could only carry about 10 extra pounds apiece and left Ben and Chris hiking with 130-pound kayaks. It's pretty obvious right off the bat that we needed a few more porters. We're going super slow right away. Five hours into the first day, my knees is really starting to hurt. Still, the first day, the party trudged up 4,000 feet to the top of the pass. The second day, they descended 3,500 feet down the other side. And now all the weight was coming down on us as we're hiking down, down, down into the river canyon through deep mud. It was raining on us the whole time, so the terrain was not only really steep, it was also like each step you could just lose it. And... By the end of that day, it felt like the whole outside of my knee wanted to lock up. That's when I knew that I was, <laughs> that I was in real trouble. It was day four, it was two miles in, my knee locks up, like literally it won't let me take another step. And <laughs> it doesn't just happen while I'm sitting down, it happens as I'm hiking mid stride. And I jump, my boat goes flying off, and I go tumbling down the hill. It's still pretty early in the day, but he just puts his boat down and says, okay, I'm, I'm just gonna stop here. I'm gonna wait here, maybe for a couple days, let my knee get better, I'll catch up with you guys, or not. If my knee doesn't recover, I'll go downstream and I'll just wait for you there. But you should go ahead. I've definitely never seen Ben struggle like that. One of my Achilles heels is I can be impatient, blame things on other people, but it was just an awesome moment when uh, Chris came down and he just sat with me by the river and really sort of was a moment when you're like, this is actually a really good partnership. This is somebody who cares about me and uh, my health and safety more than some crazy goal that we've set out for each other. And it was just a nice moment to realize that, yeah, we're in this together for sure. And, you know, this isn't what he did or what I did and my body failing me or his lack of logistical planning. It's like, this is our trip. We're in here together. And um, we were really on our own.
limped back into camp late that fourth night and agreed to take a rest day the following day. And it's the craziest thing. My knee, you know, it, it kind of comes back. When I get the weight off my back, it kind of comes back. And that morning I woke up. Inflammation had definitely gone down. The weather was good. The porters were all raring to go. And we took off into the mountains and the knee kept working. Another 40 or 50 miles all the way up to 8,000 feet of elevation in the very last village before it turns to pure mountains on the border with Tibet. What do you think about starting the source to see of the Irrawaddy right here? Oh man, I'm excited to get in the water. I think it's worth saying by the time we actually make it to the water, we had been in the country for at least three weeks. But on the river, we start paddling and it's amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful, you know, snow-capped peaks going down into this amazing, thick, totally untouched jungle and great white water. The water was crystal, crystal clear. We'd be drinking right out of the river. And if you think about drinking out of the rivers in Southeast Asia, it's a foreign concept, but this river, you could just flip over and just start gulping, which is exactly what I did every time I had the opportunity because we'd been hiking for 12 days and probably not drinking nearly enough water. I was finally off my feet. I mean, it was just bliss. Pretty amazing if there was a group of amazed villagers at the end of every day of kayaking, but that's what we have going on right now here in Zutu village. That very first day I'll never forget because it was apparent that everybody in the village had gotten wind that we were kayaking through the river and as we pull into the village just at sunset, there are hundreds of villagers waiting along the bank there. People who are up on the trail are calling down to their the village downstream saying, hey, those two white dudes are coming down the river, go look. And then we would get to a village in the evening and there would be people waiting there, welcoming us in. There's hot tea waiting. People would come in, make fires, bring us food. You know, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced along a river. Occasionally, <laughs> we could forget about what was downstream. With the help of their guide, Chris and Ben had managed to obtain a permit to run the upper section of the river. But 55 miles downstream, the current would push them into Panandine, and beyond that into a restricted area. Their chances of getting permission to run the next 200 miles were shaky at best. Coming through the headwaters section, I had gone through so many flips of what I wanted to do downstream you know, regardless of the order from the military. And I had gone between, of course, we're going downstream. We can go fast. We can do this bottom canyon 150 miles in three days. We can paddle at night. Like, we can race and we can do it. And then on the flip side of that, I thought, no, of course, there's no way we can take this risk. There's a rebel army down there. I guess this is it, huh? Benandim. Right here kind of marks the end of one chapter. We don't really know what the next chapter is going to be. 
but I'm so ready to be here and, uh, and find out. So we arrive still pretty optimistic and we just get a big no, you cannot go. In that region have too many KI, like Kachin Independence Army, yeah. Uh, we can't give you the insurance for your yeah, life. Right. They will capture both of you or maybe kill with a gun or something like that. Chris and I in the past, we've definitely come up against these same sorts of issues, not having permission and permission really not being available. And in the past, really, we've always found that we can work it out on the ground and or just go by the old adage, beg for forgiveness as opposed to asking for permission. And so that was our plan. You know, it was in hindsight, it wasn't a great plan but we really didn't figure that out until we arrived in Panandim. They get there, hear that definitive no, there's no permission, you do not pass this point. And knowing that if we did decide to go without permission, it would have been totally clear what we were doing. It would have put our guide and all of our porters at huge risk because it would have seemed like they were complicit. So it was pretty clear and still incredibly disappointing decision to make to hike back out. Maybe I'll have some more inspiring commentary on the other side of the mountain, but right now it's just a lot, of, a lot of questions about what got us to this point and not a whole lot of answers. So, probably the worst hike of my life, just like hiking for what? Going where? Our mission was ostensibly over. We'd pretty much failed miserably in, in our preparation. And again that night, Chris and I, it was, we were pretty much at odds with each other. But again, we just sat down, took a deep breath, and realized that we needed to reevaluate. We needed to figure out what it was we were going to do next. We were just going to leave Myanmar and just stop there. And what we decided is that we'd, uh, we'd go ahead and call it a conflict portage and get to the closest point downstream that we could access and continue our mission. You know, there was still another 800 miles of the Irrawaddy to the ocean. Uh, we were missing a huge chunk of the whitewater, stung a little bit, but what could we do? We, the thing that we decided is we just needed to persevere and try to continue on. Didn't want to get back on this truck, but moving forward towards Patel, long way to go. Try to figure out plan B. From Putao, we try our best not to get back on a plane. But again, we're stymied by local officials. We couldn't travel the road. So we had no choice but to get back on the plane and put our boats back on a truck <laughs> heading south. So we've got the boats heading down towards Machina. So catch a flight today and 
keep our fingers crossed, get back on the river tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not gonna hold my breath on that one, but shoot, something's gotta go right for us at this point, I figure. to Medina, 40 minutes. We'll be cruising at an altitude of 15,000 feet. They use a mobile phone and other electronics to buy a screen for TV. Uh, not sure. Not sure. Not sure you can wait in one week. It's not good. Three, four more days, not tonight. It's a problem. Definitely a problem. If our boats don't get here. Again, they found themselves in a hotel, spending a lot of money, hoping their kayaks would show up. Waiting around, being delayed more and more and more at every step of the way was a complete drain on any motivation and inspiration we had. They'd planned to stay in Myanmar for 28 days. After 35, they had covered 55 miles of the 1,200 that they had hoped to kayak, and they still didn't know if their boats would make it. And we're just like, man, we need to get out of here. And we kind of come to the same idea at the same time, which is to buy a local boat and continue taking it downstream. The political situation downstream remained unclear. But if they made it past the town of Shinbo, from what they could tell, it looked like they should be able to float to the Adaman Sea. So they bought a boat. It's pretty exciting. I've never, this is a real boat. It's stable, it's, it's like water resistant, but the most important thing is it's ours. All right, here we go. <laughs> oh, somehow I feel like this is, this is where the adventure really begins. This boat is beautiful. It's totally perfect. It costs us way too much money. It's heavy. It's sinking. It's full of water. It's slippery. It's hard to stand in. It's not very stable. It's hard to paddle, but it's perfect. It gives us hope, like it gives us inspiration to continue going downstream. Definitely had some second thoughts first few hours out here, but we're actually making pretty good progress. Good news is, is that everybody who passes by, no one's even given us a second glance, you know. It's, we're in the local boat, we're all covered up, kind of blend into the landscape here, so it's definitely working out. It's hot out. The river's grown by like 20 times. I mean, the river in certain places is a half mile wide or wider. But here we are, instead of being in our own boats, we're actually paddling the same boat. And we've got 600 miles of river in front of us. It just seemed like it was meant to be, like we were meant to do this, meant to make this crappy conflict portage, meant to lose our kayaks. All of this, the knee crap, all of the worry and 
was all like culminating in this perfect synergy of being stripped of these superfluous items, shit that we didn't need, and being in this canoe. We are totally out of it, think that we're totally blending in to the landscape, <laughs> which is the funniest thing. Obviously, we're not. Like, every other boat like this has a motor on it. And here we are, like, two white guys with full-brimmed hats on, standing up, paddling down the middle of the river, thinking that nobody's noticing us. One of the best things that we thought about this boat is that we can just keep going at night, too. There's enough space for us to lay down and have our bags and be dry enough and semi-comfortable. That was actually probably the most hair-raising portion of the whole trip, river-wise, was being in the river in the middle of the night. Like, it was, it was awesome. It was so awesome. It was the most amazing 24 hours that I've ever had on the river. <laughs> and we were moving 80 miles, and we had, what, like 600 miles to cover, and it just seemed like at that point we were on our way right to the ocean, right to the, the Adamant Sea. Early in the morning, a thick fog rolled in and made it nearly impossible to navigate. After a close call with a log, Ben and Chris pulled over to the bank and napped for a couple of hours. Later that morning, they would try to paddle past Sunbo, that last question mark on the map between them and the ocean. And that was kind of an epic morning just past Sinbo Village, where we know that there's a KIA base, so it's good to pass Sinbo and hopefully be floating free into this first canyon. Pretty excited to get past this, this little crux right here. Right when we're filming an interview, talking about how excited we are about the rest of the river and how great it is to feel like we're kind of past this crux. A big motorboat comes swinging up right next to us. Yeah, literally, at the, you know, maybe 10 seconds after he turned the camera on, that's when the boat just came roaring out and tried to split us in half. No boats. No boat. No, no boat. Okay, okay, hold it. They grabbed our boat, basically pulled us into their bigger motorboat, threw all of our bags in, tied up our boat to the side of theirs, all in the matter of two minutes. And, you know, we're saying immigration, special police, military government officials. The language barrier made it impossible to figure out exactly what had happened. But in essence, Ben and Chris had not been blending in on the river at all. All of these representatives from various government branches had had the time to organize, wait for the two of them to try to float past Sinbo, and then stop them and take them back upstream to Machina. In Machina, a whole nother slew of government officials had gathered, including one really agitated guy with a Glock 9. The authorities had also grabbed the hotel owners and the family who sold the two of them the local boat. And they're there, like, standing against the wall. And, you know, I come up and try to say hello to them, and they won't even talk to us. They won't even acknowledge us. 
the dad turns his back as, you know, as if we had done something extremely terribly wrong. And the guy with the Glock spends the next hour or so interrogating the people at the hotel of why they had let us leave the hotel, not knowing where we were going after that. The hotel people had the same exact reaction as the family that sold us a boat. And it was just like, oh my God, you know, like, what have we done? The authorities eventually let the family and the hotel owners go, but ordered them not to let the two foreigners leave the hotel until they conducted a hearing. When the date of the hearing arrived, the officials took one glance at Ben and Chris's expired visas and sent them to go get extensions in the capital. And uh, you can't get a visa extension in Yangon. There's no possible way. So, ostensibly, they were kicking us out. When did the creature tells for you? Wheels his bloody flank to run you through. I mean, initially, the the idea was to go to Myanmar to run a stretch of the Irrawaddy that hadn't been kayaked before. But we actually decided to take on the mission because we wanted to go source to sea. And in that, we didn't even come close. We ran uh, 120 miles of a 1,200-mile long river and spent a horrific amount of money in the process. But looking back on it, I think that had we have, had floated freely down the Irrawaddy, I don't know that we would have learned nearly as much about what actually was going on there. And, and not in a way of reading a newspaper, but in a way of actually seeing some of the things that are happening on the ground and seeing the poverty of the place and the richness of the place. You know, I think that inevitably in travel you get that experience, but I think in our failure <laughs> there was just so much more time for us to contemplate it the corruption that's occurring in that area stopped us from running the river. It wasn't just a side note. It was directly in front of us. And it was something that we had to look right in the eye when that family was standing against that wall, being interrogated by a guy with a Glock 9 who probably wouldn't hesitate to use it if, if the occasion arose. I often think about you know, a trip down the river as you can just almost move silently through the river and be sort of this conscientious objector or this third party almost looking in, but it really forced the point of even though what we were doing is seemingly pretty inconsequential, like it had a very, very direct influence and consequence on the world around us. At the end of the trip, after all had gone wrong, after we knew we were going home, I was still, it made me so much more interested in trying and attempting more expeditions like that. I'm always going to have the question of would we have gone if we had known more? And I have no idea if we would have gone or not. But I have no question about whether or not it was worth trying. It was definitely worth trying.
Daenerys is made possible by the good people at Patagonia. You can now pre-order a revised copy of Yvonne Chouinard's classic book, Let My People Go Surfing, The Tale of an Itinerant Climber and the Education of a Reluctant Businessman. Check it out. You can learn more at Patagonia.com. Additional support comes from REI, Fireside Provisions, and from Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. Get your bike to the trailhead or just across town in style and with no hassle. Visit kuatracks.com to check out their lineup of roof racks, hitch racks, and accessories. Thanks, Kuat, for always being there for us. And you, our listeners, you guys also power us. You truly keep the diaries thriving. We are about to review short submissions for 2017. So if you've got a story to share, you have two weeks. That's right, two weeks to type it up and send it in, and we will review and consider you to be a part of this show next year. You can find our complete submission guidelines on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Please visit them first. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much for Ben and Chris for sharing their adventure with us. Ben is currently kite skiing across the Greenland ice cap. That sounds like it doesn't suck. He hopes in making a remote first ascent off the country's west coast. Chris is up in Alaska for the summer working on editing together a film from their trip to Myanmar, but getting distracted by the beautiful weather. You can follow their adventures on social media or check out more of their work at clearwaterfilms.com. That's clearh2ofilms.com. Music today by Nasai23, Vienna Ditto, Kai Engel, The Effed Up Beat, Little Glass Men, and Amy Stolzenbach. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive with permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. As always, you can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode of The Diaries was produced by Jen Alchel, Becca Cahal, and me, Fitz Cahal. You have been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.